Well, despite what the cover of your bulletin says, today is the second Sunday in Advent. My daughter pointed that out to me. Thank you. Um, During Advent, we devote the weeks leading up to Christmas to reflection and repentance. Before God, we, we grapple with and we reckon with the darkness in our own hearts and in the world around us. And this is how we as Christians prepare ourselves for the coming of the light of the world. This year, we're, we're following the lectionary through a sampling of different psalms, continuing today with Psalm 85. As we will see, Psalm 85 models for us not only how to pray in times of crisis, but also how to hope in times of crisis. The psalmist is so confident that God will show himself faithful and loving and steadfast that having already prayed for restoration, the psalmist begins speaking as if restoration is a done deal. That's a special kind of faith, right? In a time of crisis, to celebrate what God has done, to celebrate what God is doing, and to preemptively celebrate what God will surely do. That sort of faith is what makes Christian hope so hardy. That is why the light of Christian hope is able to survive deep darkness. We'll begin in verse 1. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Psalm 85 opens with a remembrance of God's past mercy, a rehearsal of God's historic kindness to the people of Israel. And this serves as as kind of a preface or a preamble that outlines what the people of Israel are asking from the Lord today, in the present. It says, you were favorable in the past. We need your favor today. You restored our fortunes in the past. We need your restoration today. You forgave our iniquity in the past. We need your forgiveness today. So Psalm 85 is picking up on the same restoration theme that we covered last week in Psalm 80. In Psalm 80, restore us, O God, is the key refrain. Restore us, O God. And in Psalm 85, we find five instances of that same Hebrew verb. But it's translated in a few different ways. In verse 1, it's to restore. In verse 3, it's to turn. In verse 4, it's to restore. But in verse 6, it's to revive. And verse 8 is to turn back. But in each of those cases, it's the same Hebrew verb. Psalm 85 is continuing to build upon the restoration theme we discussed last week. Okay, verse 4. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what the Lord, what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. 
but let them not turn back to folly. All right, so in verses 1 to 3, the psalmist looks backward to past mercies. And now verses 4 to 8, the psalmist looks upward. He looks to God for new mercies. He looks backward, and then he looks upward. And I want us to notice something important. Um, as, As the psalmist looks upward, he presents God with a series of questions. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And I believe these questions teach us how to honor God as God, even as we question his purposes and his timing. If you've ever lived with another human being, you know that accusations can sometimes masquerade as questions. One common example, why are you upset? Often when we ask this, we mean something else. We say the words, why are you upset? But we're not actually curious. What we mean is, you have nothing to be upset about. You're being unreasonable, right? It's an accusation masquerading as a question. And the key difference between why are you upset as an accusation and why are you upset as a genuine question is the heart behind the question. That's, that's the key difference. So consider, for instance, the difference between how Jonah questions God and how Psalm 85 questions God. Jonah assumes in his pride that he can see the situation in Nineveh clearly. And so he concludes that God is guilty, guilty of being too gracious. He questions God, but the heart behind his questioning is accusatory. The questions in Psalm 85, on the other hand, are humble and full of faith. The psalmist doesn't know God's plan in detail, but that's not a problem for him. Because as we will see, he does not doubt, he does not doubt God's goodness and faithfulness. Even in the midst of crisis, he does not doubt God's goodness and faithfulness. You see, God has made promises to his people. And because God keeps his promises, the psalmist is able to appeal to God on the basis of those promises. And so these questions are humble and genuine, not accusatory, because they are asked in faith. The psalmist is not wondering if God is going to keep his promises. He's wondering how and when God is going to keep his promises. These questions assume God's faithfulness. He will be faithful. He will be merciful. He will show loving kindness. It's just a matter of how and when. And we see an explicit, uh, an explicit expression of this faith in verse 8. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. The God who spoke the world into existence will speak shalom 
to his people? Will God be angry with us forever? Of course not. Because he will speak shalom to his people. Will God prolong his anger to all generations? Of course not. Because he will speak shalom to his people. Will God revive us again? That we may rejoice in him? Of course he will. Because he will speak shalom to his people. To question God in this way is, I think, at at the heart of the Advent season. Faith-filled questioning is is a very Advent-y thing. Remember, we we are grappling with and reckoning with the darkness in our own hearts and in the world around us. But we are grappling and we are reckoning in faith. We know that God has promised to restore and to save. We know that December 25th is coming. And so we don't permit ourselves to to run headlong into the hustle and bustle of the holiday season. In the midst of the darkness, we, we don't just force a smile and take another sip of eggnog. God wants us to question him. He is not threatened by our questions. And so we acknowledge the darkness. We we grapple with and we reckon with the darkness. And we question God concerning it. But we also cling to his promises. We ask him, how long, O Lord? When will you come? When is the light going to break in? When will you restore us? That's what a faith-filled question sounds like. When will you fulfill your promises, O God? How are you going to pull this off? All right. So, verses 1 to 3, the psalmist looks backward to past mercies. Verses 4 to 8, the psalmist looks upward for new mercies. And now, verses 9 to 13, the psalmist looks forward for future mercies. He looks backward, he looks upward, he looks forward. He remembers, he prays, and he hopes. Verse 9. Surely, His salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is one of the most uh, beautiful and poetic articulations of harmony and concord in all of the scriptures. And, and there is so much to be said about these verses. But I want to call your attention to um, what I see as a, as a particular theme running through them. And that theme is the, the meeting, the intersection, the coming together of heaven and earth. The psalmist looks forward to glory dwelling in the land, which is a reference to God's own presence dwelling in the land. The psalmist looks forward to the the meeting of God's love and our righteousness. 
He looks forward to the kissing of heavenly righteousness and earthly shalom. He imagines heavenly righteousness shining down from the sky as earthly faithfulness sprouts up from the ground. So again, the the theme running through these verses is the coming together of heaven and earth. And, And listen, what is Christmas if not the celebration of the coming together of heaven and earth? God made man. The birth of the Son of God as a human child. Heaven literally walking the earth. Glory literally dwelling in the land. The kissing of heavenly righteousness and earthly shalom. The coming down of heaven and the sprouting up of earth. In Christ, heaven and earth no longer exist as as two poles along a spectrum of love and faithfulness and righteousness and peace. No, in, in Christ, heaven and earth have finally entered into partnership. We call it the new covenant. Heaven and earth share a common purpose now in Christ. The kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of heaven is coming, and the kingdom of heaven will surely come. And so we look backward, and we look upward, and we look forward, but we look no further than Jesus. He is love and faithfulness and righteousness and shalom incarnate. And as it says in verse 14, his footsteps show us the way. Uh, back during the month of November, we talked a lot about the Hebrew word shalom, and I've already mentioned it a few times already, but in English it's translated as peace. But shalom is a condition of law and order that results in the blessing of prosperity and societal wholeness. Shalom is a state of holistic human flourishing, not just peace, but also security and love and health and happiness. Shalom is God's vision for the world. And the Bible insists that shalom actually is possible. And I I wanted to remind us of that today because the season of Advent really makes no sense unless you believe shalom is possible. If you don't believe shalom is possible, then then go ahead and and force that smile and take another sip of eggnog. But if you do believe that shalom is possible, that God's vision for the world is possible, then it's right to immerse yourself in the season of Advent, to grapple with and and to reckon with the darkness. Because the fact is that there is far less shalom in our world than there could be. There's far less shalom in our church than there could be. Far less shalom in your home than there could be, in your heart than there could be. The season of Advent invites us to acknowledge these realities and to pray for restoration and to allow hope, the the hope of the gospel, to gestate within us. The kingdom of heaven has come. The kingdom of heaven is coming. 
the kingdom of heaven will surely come. The darkness will give way to the light. The Lord will give what is good. So remember his goodness and pray for his goodness and hope in his goodness. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are good and you do give what is good and you will give what is good. We long for your restoration. Jesus, you are love and faithfulness and righteousness and shalom incarnate. The God-man in whom and through whom heaven and earth meet. We look to you. Please show us the way. Holy Spirit, in, into this world of darkness, shine the light of the gospel in our hearts, in our families, in this church, in this neighborhood, and throughout all the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.